Cliff. You may be seated. Love that song. That is a great kickoff to our 40 Days of Hope as we approach Easter. Can you believe that? We are in that season. How many are ready for 40 Days of Hope? You're like, sign me up for that. Yes, I, I'm first in line for that, and I promise you, just because it says 40 days, we won't stop after 40 days. Um, this week, as I was preparing for the message and uh, thinking through the different opportunities that we have coming up in the next six weeks, you know, isn't it ironic how sometimes life events happen that kind of feel the opposite of what you're trying to do? And we had ordered, I had ordered some of these uh, bracelets, which I'll talk to you about at the end of my message, and it just says hope on them, just as a little reminder uh, for those of you that, that like those kinds of things uh, for the next 40 days. And uh, we ordered them, and I, I felt great about when I ordered them and that the date that they would arrive and be here just in time, and, and I waited, and I waited, and, and they didn't come. And so finally, I, I was like, oh, I can track the package. So I looked it up, and it said, delivered at 2.48 this last Saturday. No bracelets. So after several phone calls back and forth with a very kind young man named Connor who assured me that he would make it right, <laughs> back and forth, I was like, guys, I told my team, I said, hope's lost in the mail. <laughs> it's, it's lost. And Connor says, hope's not arriving for two weeks. We have to reorder it, you know, the irony of that. So I, I tried to, I, I knew that it was just bracelets. So I was trying to laugh, but it was super annoying because you want to have things, you know, when you order them. Well, thankfully, Jill came up with this brilliant idea to, to, to intercept the postal man and ask him to check every single box to see if he put it in the wrong one that we don't have a key to. And sure enough, that was the case. Um, and so hope arrived just in time Friday morning. So... Anyway, yay, that's so exciting. And a great, uh, you know, opportunity. If something ever goes awry, you always have a sermon illustration that maybe you can, you can use to kick off your series. But we ready to dive in today? If you're ready, say ready. Ready, ready. all right. Well, I thought it'd be good to start with a definition of hope, and I'm sure there's a gazillion definitions of hope out there, but I liked this one that I read, and it is the state in which we anticipate a future of goodness and beauty. The state in which we anticipate a future of goodness and beauty. So this hope, it's not wishful thinking. It's not empty religious platitudes. It's, it's something that's more gritty than that. It's anchored in reality. And yet, it allows the power of Jesus to even come into places that seem hopeless or unlikely and infuse them with beauty and goodness. And so I'm wondering today, is that where we're living this idea, this anticipation of a future of goodness and beauty. And I know some of you may say, well, yes, depending on the day. I think that's very honest. Uh, for others, you may feel like, ah, there's places in me that just really do feel hopeless. Or as I'd like to say, the hoper's broken. I made up that word. But my, my hoper's broken. I think all of us have places inside that maybe layer upon layer upon layer of disappointment it's led to that place. Um, so the question is, well, how do we revive hope? Do we even have agency in that? Can we build hope? How do we engage? And if, you know, if we're the church, we're the hope church with a mission to invite people to find hope in Jesus. What does that look like 
to build a hope that lasts, a hope that is resilient, a hope that is durable. Well, around Christmas, I started reading a book called The Deepest Place. It's about suffering and the formation of hope because that caught my eye. I'm like, the formation of hope. It's written by Christian psychiatrist, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And uh, he happens to be a leading voice in neuroscience today, both in Christian and secular circles. Perhaps some of you have read his books, The Anatomy of the Soul or The Soul of Shame, or you've um, listened to his podcast, Being Known. But what makes his work compelling to me is that he takes his experience and his research in interpersonal neurobiology, and he intersects it with Christian formation. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to get too, too deep into all this psychological stuff because that would be um, uh, beyond my depth. But there is a main point from his work that I think is worthy of our time this morning. And simply, uh, one way that we form durable hope is through our remembered moments. And that's the key there, through our remembered moments of connection with Jesus and or people. He further unpacks it to say to have the capacity to anticipate a future of goodness and beauty for yourself or for others, which is how we defined hope this morning. It is formed out not out of a willful cerebral belief, so it's not formed out of something we just think up, we just conjure up, and we just make it happen in our heads, but it emerges out of an experience of being loved by people and being loved by God in a way that you remember. Dr. Thompson states this, he says, belief of that type, and he's talking about the cognitive type, is not enough to sustain hope. He says, I hope because I formed it by practicing being loved and loving others in a way that I can remember and remember in embodied form. And again, the key there is practice, that it's a process. And he says, I remembered it in an embodied form. What does that mean? It's like when all your senses are engaged in that experience and that memory. Just think about it. If you've been in a, a moment with somebody where you had connection and uh, maybe it filled you with comfort or it filled you with peace or encouragement and, and you even kind of maybe felt it like a peace just kind of wash over you, maybe in your chest or, or in your gut or, or maybe you, you um, had a hug that to this day, like when you think about that, you think God really met me with his comfort in that moment. That's kind of like an embodied experience. And so Dr. Thompson is just simply saying, hey, when we uh, practice and remember these moments where we experience being loved by God and by other people, that is what builds a sustaining hope that is within us. And so he's saying this pure head knowledge of just saying up here, you know, God is good or God is love, which is true. Um, or, or this, uh, you know, You've heard this, God has promised you hope in a future. That is true, but if it just stays in your head, that's not enough to sustain hope because it, re it requires relationship. And by nature, it is vulnerable because it has to be. So because in order to be hope-filled people, we have to allow these unhopeful places, and I think if we're honest, we all have them, these unhopeful places within us access to one another and to God. And I know that that can be scary. It can be scary to allow uh, people and God access into places where we have lost hope. 
Dr. Thompson uh, says this, to bring those parts of us that have a way harder time being hopeful. And he describes it as places where we are at war with God. There's just this constant strife or this battle going on. He says, into the presence of others and to address those parts with compassion and invite them into a place where they can be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. So he's saying, when you can address those places of compassion, invite them into being seen, soothed, safe, and secure, you will form hope and hope that will last. Now, some of you may have noticed that I just made a reference to attachment theory. And I'll let you know, I'm not going to dive too deep into that. But at the basic level, attachment theory is about emotional bonding. And we know that that begins at childhood. And so for children to develop a normal social and emotional bonds in life, they need to have a secure attachment with their primary caregiver. That's what att attachment theory states. So hang in there with me. I know we're in church and not psychology class 101, which was not my favorite class in school. But I think it's important for us to learn a little bit of how the brain works that God designed for us and how it's involved in our formation. So one way for us to describe this healthy attachment are in these four um, words that he um, pitched in his book, seen, soothed, safe, and secure. And ever since I've learned this, I've been thinking about this in um, kind of ways to describe with language what makes a healthy friendship healthy. And so this idea of being seen, when you're with another person, that they're aware of you, that they're attentive, that they're attuned, and that they're responsive. They kind of see you. Soothed, you feel comforted, supported, especially maybe in your like darker emotions. You, you have that kind of soothing that happens in the presence of somebody else. Your emotions can be help regulated through that relationship. Or safe, free from judgment, you know, protected from harm, fully accepted. You're in a space where the other person is not trying to fix you. These are all words that kind of describe what it means to be in a safe place with another person. And all of those can lead to security, feeling this mutual trust and respect. So this is initially formed in childhood. And parents, this is what your children need from you to help them learn how to form healthy bonds with one another as they grow up. Now, some of us have received this uh, from our primary caregivers, and some of us um, did not. And some of us, it's a whole story in between. It's kind of a mixed bag. But regardless, regardless of our upbringing, regardless of what you did or did not receive from your caregiver, regardless of how our life experiences have shaped us, for better or for worse, Regardless of how we've learned to survive in the world, whether in healthy ways or maybe not so healthy ways, and probably a combination of both, uh, Dr. Thompson says, regardless of how that all is played out, we can still learn this, and we can still learn to form healthy attachment with others that leads us to a, an ability to form a sustainable hope in our lives, a hope that anticipates beauty and goodness in the future. And furthermore, this durable hope is directly related to our willingness to be seen for who we truly are. And you know, this is something we've talked about here in church. We've talked about vulnerability. You know, we went through that long series deeper on emotional health. But I think what I've been learning more and more lately is how much that is connected in with our ability to build hope. And that has kind of been a new concept for me.
So hope emerges when we practice being seen and loved by God and others. So this practice is something that kind of really rewires our brain. You actually have neural pathways in your brain that can be rewired. That's so hard to say. Rewired to think and feel and to act differently. And that, again, is a process. So those negative tapes that maybe you have that play over and over again, or that secret that has been uh, kept hidden that wreaks havoc on your soul, these, these can be brought into loving relationship, accepting space with Jesus, with Jesus and his body, which is his followers, which is you, and we can begin a journey of healing and hope. So one outcome I have for our church after 40 days of hope experience is to come away with a deeper understanding of how our lasting hope can be related to being known by one another. One of the most influential pastors and teachers that I've been able to spend some time with and learn from is Terry Wardle. And he said a quote that I heard in the last few weeks, and I haven't been able to to, uh, kick it, and I don't want to. And he said, in my younger years, I wanted to be well-known. And when he was saying younger years, he was talking about in his 30s when he was right in the heat of building a big church, and God was giving him success in the eyes of the world, and... uh, it, it seemed to be like going really well for him, but the pressure was so high. And it led to having a mental breakdown, and he had to be admitted into a psychiatric hospital. And so he says, in my younger years, I wanted to be well known, to be well known but after my breakdown, I wanted to be known well. And so Ever since this journey of healing and wholeness that he has been on, ever since this journey of being in a really dark place where he was thrust into a space of being seen, soothed, safe, and secure by people, mental, uh, mental health practitioners and other people that were in this hospital and then his long journey, he was able to begin practicing hope, practice being seen in ways that he had never been able to be seen before. And so now he says, I just want to be known well by my wife and my kids and the people I minister to and the people that I spend time with. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's wrong or it's bad to be well known. Okay, hopefully you hear my heart on that. Um, But I think what he's getting at is the priority of it. And what is our, our deepest and greatest ambition? Is it to be well-known, or is it to be known well and to allow people access into our lives so that we can truly be loved by others and by God? So if we want to be people of hope, of a compelling and radical hope, and growing in vulnerability with one another, we have to learn to be able to be open and to not hide. And I think Jesus builds hope in those places that we give him access to. And often that process comes again through his people, through his body. So you may wonder, well, how does that happen? Well, I think it happens in a number of ways, but one way is through stories. And some of you may be wondering, Lisa, when are you ever going to get to the Bible this morning? <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to head right there right now. And um, I'm taking you to the Old Testament today, to 2 Kings. And so if you have a Bible or your device, you can turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at an Old Testament story today of a woman who was willing to be seen in her desperation. 
and found lasting hope as a result. So 2 Kings 4, a little bit of a context. We're in Israel's history, of Israel's history right now, is that the kingdoms have been divided, northern, southern kingdom, and God has deployed prophets to minister to these kingdoms at this time, especially because the Israelites have uh, turned their backs on God and turned towards idolatry. And so God is sending prophets in to kind of revive them and bring them back to faithfulness and love to God. And so God had raised up this prophet Elijah, which you probably have heard about. Elijah did so many signs and wonders, and then Elijah passed it on to Elisha. And if you recall, Elisha was the guy who boldly asked for a double portion of God's spirit. And as we read about him, we definitely see that God's spirit was on him because he performed many signs and wonders and miracles. And I wanted to read through a really cool story with you today and see what we can learn from it. So 2 Kings 4, um, verse 1. Let's begin reading. So the wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried to Elisha. She said, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. So right here, we're introduced to a widow, to a grieving woman who has lost her husband. And from what we can learn from this verse is that he was from the company of prophets, that in other words of saying a school of prophets. So at this time, God was raising up schools of prophets to teach them to be able to speak on his behalf and again do what like Elisha was doing. And so we can imply from this that, that her husband knew Elisha because she says, your servant, my husband, is dead. We also uh, see that he revered the Lord. But this is what's crazy is she's saying the creditor is coming. The creditor is coming to take my two boys as a slave. So what we see here is this woman is in deep, deep debt. And you may wonder, well, why, why does that tie into her losing her kids? Well, thankfully, that's not a culture we live in. But that is, at the time, how they would handle sometimes paying off a debt, is that the creditor would take your assets, and if it's your, your kids, then he would make them into slaves to pay off what you owe. Needless to say, this mom is not going to let that happen. And so she is desperate, and she goes to the, um, to the man of God who she, who she thinks can do something about it. So let's keep reading in verse 2. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? She replies, your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Now, when he asks her these questions, how can I help you? And then he says, tell me, what do you have, you know, in your house? And immediately I'm, I'm thinking, gosh, that sounds so much like Jesus, doesn't it? Even this is way before Jesus' time. <laughs> how much do you have? Well, I have five loaves, two fish. <laughs> how much do you have? Well, I have a lot of water, but not enough wine. Uh, but here is Elisha kind of responding in a way that's very Jesus-like, that's very God-like. And I really do believe that God was speaking through him at that moment. And she replies, I have nothing there at all except this small jar of olive oil. Now, I don't think when she says, I have nothing, she is kind of, um, you know, maybe exaggerating. Like, like if your kid comes to you and says, hey, I'm hungry, uh, we have nothing to eat. 
and you say, well, the pantry's full and the fridge is full, but what, what are they saying? There's nothing here that I want to eat, you know? Or you need to pick out an outfit, and you're like, I have nothing to wear. And your friend or your spouse says, your whole closet's full of clothes. What you're saying is, there's nothing in there that I want to wear. I don't think that's the case here for her. I really think she is this poor and this destitute. And honestly, she has nothing at all but this small jar of olive oil. And guess what? That's enough to work with. Now, you might be wondering, why is she in debt? Um, from this passage, we aren't given that information. We can uh, maybe guess that because she's a widow, she, she doesn't have access to means, you know, to be, be able to provide for herself because she's on the margins of society. Something that I also discovered in studying that I want to propose to you, but I don't, I don't know if it's true, is uh, through Jewish stories, through Jewish tradition and the writings of Josephus, he proposed that her husband was Obadiah, which we read about in 1 Kings 18. Well, what was so special about this guy named Obadiah? He actually was a man who feared God, but he worked for Jezebel. If you remember Jezebel, evil lady. Jezebel and King Ahab. Well, what Obadiah is known for is he hid a hundred prophets in a cave so Jezebel wouldn't murder them. Fifty in each cave, and he fed them water, and he fed them food. Now that wasn't cheap. And so um, tradition says that that is how he incurred debt and therefore passed it on to his wife. I don't know, but that's fascinating because I could see how all the more reason she would want to say, Elisha, this is your problem, <laughs> because my husband did something very brave uh, to protect the prophets. But again, I don't know. At the least, she's in a bad position, and she has to pay off this debt. So what happens? What happens as she is waiting? You know, I found it interesting, too, that, um, you know, if she only has one jar of olive oil, what was this whole journey like getting to that place of such desperation? And was this the first time that she brought her need to somebody? We don't know, but it kind of makes me feel like this is the first time that she dug to her courage and said, okay, enough is enough. I need help because I'm going to lose my kids. And I can relate to this state of waiting till it's so bad that you have to ask for help. And I wish that wasn't sometimes the case with me. Maybe it's the case for you because it's hard to make our needs known. It's hard to be seen in places that feel hopeless um, or despairing and bring that to people. But she was pushed to the edge and she had to ask. So what is his solution going to be? Well, let's continue reading in verse 3. Elisha says, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. And he says, don't just ask for a few. And then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars. I'm thinking, with what oil? <laughs> and as each is filled, put it to one side. So his solution, Elisha says, is go. He's like, I want you to go do something. And he asks her to do something that's pretty brave. He asks her to go around and ask her neighbors for something. And he doesn't just say one neighbor or two. He says all of them. 
And then he says, don't ask for just a few. Get as many as you can. And then go, shut the door behind you and your sons, pour oil into all the jars till each is filled, and then put it to one side. This is so significant because God could have asked her, God could have gone about this in so many different ways because he's God and he worked through Elisha and, and there could have been many different ways to maybe provide for this woman. But what God does is the plan is to involve the people around her. Why? Well, maybe to remind her that she's not alone. Maybe uh, to, for her to experience some, some kindness and love for once. Maybe to prevent her from keeping the story a secret. So in her state of need, she is being pushed out to go and ask for something, and she does it. And she does it by faith because she is willing to be seen and to be loved by God and others. He pushed her to a place of saying, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do, and I need help. And so, you know what? I'm going to do that. And Elisha says, don't ask for just a few. Go big. Ask big. And this, this challenges me because, again, when I'm in a place where maybe I've had layer upon layer of disappointment, I've, I'm tempted to just, you know, say, well, God, just give me good enough. Just, just give me good enough, just what I need. You know, I operate more out of a scarcity than out of abundance. And I make God small. And Elisha's saying, no, I want you to, to ask for as many as you can to go big. And I wonder what that was like, you know, you know, knocking. Hi, could I have a jar? What are you going to do it with? I don't know how she answered that. It's not like she has oil at this point to fill them, but she did. And I'm curious how those conversations went, but she trusted Elisha. So what happens? Verse, oops, verse 5 she left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. I'm guessing in between when she left Elisha, she did the task and got the jars. She brings them home. She shuts the door behind her with her sons, and they brought her the jars to her, and she kept pouring. Bring me another jar. Pours it, fills it. Go ahead, bring me another jar. And they just kept bringing jar after jar after jar after jar. She says, bring me another one to a point where they're like, there isn't any left. And at that point, the oil stopped. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. So a few different uh, observations here is that this miracle was a combination of what she had and what her community had. It was something that they did together, and her community is who provided her with the container for the miracle to happen. Also notice that God provided for her above and beyond what she initially had hoped for or asked. It's like she just had this debt that had to be taken care of, and instead, it's like God gave her an early retirement package. It's like he said, hey, I don't want you to have to worry about taking care of yourself or providing for yourself. And in fact, I'm going to give you dignity in the process, and you can kind of have like a little mini olive oil business for a time and gain enough money to provide for your family. 
The other thing I noticed is this contrast between what was done in public and what was done in private, and God used both. She went from something public, going to all her neighbors and asking, to somewhere very private. But it took her community for her to be willing to be seen in that process. And she was just asked to take just that one step in her unfolding story, just to go ask. That's how it started. And then she came back, shut the door, and I kind of think this was God's maybe way of, of caring for her, protecting her in a special way, to be able to do that, to have this sacred moment with her sons. Now, this is a story that no doubt they'll probably tell for a lifetime, the time when God provided with them in this, this place of desperation, a time when the hope in the family rose. So when you think about your life today, when you, when you think specifically about those places in you that need a touch or an outpouring of hope, I want you to know that God invites you to be an active participant in your hope journey. He invites us to participate with him. Because with her, he said, go and ask. There was something in that um, invitation that allowed her to be seen in her moment. And we have a God whose provision often extends beyond our own known needs. Again, for this widow, she thought she just needed money for this debt, but God gave her a chance to be seen and to be shown kindness for other people and a chance for her to kind of be elevated in her community because now she was a woman with some means. And God invited her into this hope journey but she first had to allow people access to what was going on in her life and to help provide for her. This idea of practicing, putting ourselves in a position to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure by others in Jesus and to trust God to build a durable hope for us. Dr. Thompson writes, hope is something that is not developed in isolation. But it is, I love this, it is co-constructed, which inevitably raises the question, with who am I co-creating the hope that I long for? What relationships do you have right now that have access to those places within you, perhaps those deeper places, maybe those desperate places that need to be touched by the hope of God? And how can these people co-create hope with you. Or maybe you know somebody. Maybe you know somebody that has those places and, and you can join them in helping to be a co-creator of the story of hope that God is bringing in their life. It is only by risking being receptive to love, something that is very hard for us to do, will we form a durable hope, Dr. Thompson says. So what if in the next 40 days, common way, we focus on being co-creators of hope with one another and with God. What would that look like? Well, I have a few um, opportunities that are coming in the next six weeks, uh, one that we can even start this week that I wanted to invite you to be a part of. So um, I'm going to close the message with some application points of what that could look like for us to be co-constructors of hope with one another. So the first is our Lent experience, 
And uh, we, have, this is, uh, we have this a PDF that can be accessed online on our webpage if you're more of a digital person. And so by all means, go do that. But what this is, is it's a simple guide that uh, is one page per week. So it's not overwhelming, it's not super tedious, but it is, it is an experience that will do a few things. For one, it provides you with scripture and a topic for each week. So the, the topics that through this Lent experience we're gonna focus on is thirst, hunger, sickness and suffering, strangers, unprotected and oppressed. So the people that are on the margins of society. Lent, as you may be aware, in church tradition often focuses on the practices of almsgiving, fasting, and praying. And so almsgiving, uh, using our resources uh, to help those in need. And so um, through this experience, we're focusing on what it would look like to continue to pray for these specific groups of people. Some may be in your life. Many, obviously, are in our city. And uh, having this uh, focused attention on praying through that, learning about it, uh, reading and engaging in a scripture story that talks about that topic, and just inviting God to do a fresh work in our life through that with a simple prayer at the end. So the invitation is this, that, that you would create space with God to do that this week. And at the end of each kind of lesson, it gives you some kind of act that you can do or invites you in a way to offer hope. For example, this week is on thirst. So uh, one way that you can respond that we're encouraged to do, and I'm a little nervous about doing this, is it's to drink water every day. I love my coffee in the morning. And I just bought a new package of coffee. And as it was going by on the belt, I got really sad thinking that I wouldn't be able to dig into that this week. Now, I'm choosing not to. It's okay if you don't do this. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to use that time in the morning to focus my intention on praying for people to experience the living water of Jesus, and maybe there's specific people in my life, and to also pray for the, the millions of people in our world that don't have fresh water. So that just gives you like a little example of what that is like. Again, it's just one page per week. There's packets out in the lobby. And a special thanks to Debbie Fuller for creating kind of this experience, this idea. And uh, Jesse Andre, who uh, formatted and put it together for you. So 40 Days of Hope, I encourage you to participate. Maybe you skip a week and you do the other week. To whatever ability you're able to engage, I think you'll be blessed by that. All right, the second way that... Um, I like us to focus on 40 Days of Hope is through storytelling. And so on Sunday morning, we will be having either a guest speaker or someone on our staff or even people in our church who will be sharing uh, their stories of hope kind of integrated into the morning. And so I'm really looking forward to that because um, as I see the different themes and topics that are going to be covered, I feel like it's just going to touch on different places of the human experience. And I hope uh, I hope that um, that will be something that will be encouraging and comforting for our church. As I've been uh, studying this, I came across the works of uh, Dr. Yalom. don't know if any of you have heard him before. When I heard his name, I'm like, that sounds like the creepy dude on Lord of the Rings. And the therapist I was with laughed, and she says, no, that's Gollum. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, Dr. Yalom. Anyway, he is known for his research in group therapy, and there are two um, factors he talks about in group therapy that I thought tied in so well with this idea of storytelling, and the first one is he names it installation of hope. 
And I love that. And what it is, it's the encouragement that recovery is possible by sharing stories and information. So a group dynamic, when you're with people and you're sharing stories, there happens to be an installation of hope that happens in the group because you believe that, in this case, recovery is actually possible. And the second one that he uh, shares is universality. Universality. I think that's how you say it. Um, and it's the recognition of a shared experience and knowing a person's problems are not unique. So it's basically saying, wow, you, you, me too. Like, I've, I've had a similar experience. And there's something when you share that with one another that, again, can fill you with hope. And so my prayer is that God will do that through storytelling. And maybe even in your own life as you're getting together with friends or family or with your spouse or kids, I encourage you to maybe take a step in knowing each other's stories a little better. And a simple question you could ask somebody is, hey, what is a part of your story that I don't know about? Is there, is there a, a piece of your life or something that, that's important to you that, that I've never been able to hear, but I'd love to hear it? And just give them a chance to share and see what God does. And maybe they'll pitch the question back to you. Part of the storytelling uh, also can be... Um, integrated into an art experience that we're going to have at the church, and it's March 2nd from 9 to noon, uh, led by Christine Whitmore. And I'm excited for this to be an opportunity for people because I think that God can speak through art, and there's uh, moments in the abstract and the art when, when um, God can just guide us to discoveries and speak to us maybe in ways that we don't get through reading or listening to a message or other ways. And let me encourage you, if you're someone that immediately just dismissed this idea because you're like, I'm not artistic, I'm a terrible painter, I don't think that's going to be, can you maybe just give it a chance? Um, Christine's really gifted at this. I think God has gifted her at being able to tie in art and uh, use it as a way of spiritual formation. So um, that will be here at our church, 9 to noon. If you're interested in that, please sign up because you'll need materials and all of that to prepare for the opportunity. Okay. Last thing, last opportunity that I want to invite you to that I'm really excited about is our Christ in the Passover event. So on March 20th, which is a Wednesday, imagine this now, this entire sanctuary is going to be flipped into a place to feast together and share a meal. It's going to look kind of like a banquet hall. And we already have probably about eight different teams deployed and getting ready for this event and you may wonder what is Christ over Christ over Christ in the Passover event so it's going to be an interactive dinner experience that's going to uh, be able to show us the connection between the Jewish Passover the last supper that Jesus shared that we you know when we take communion we often read those famous passages that Jesus uh, shared with his disciples so it's going to connect that, the Last Supper, and our own communion experience and something that fits very well into this Lenten season as we anticipate the death and resurrection of Jesus. Some of you might know this as a Seder's feast is what it um, is sometimes referred to. About 15 years ago, I was in a church, and I watched this done during a Sunday morning service, and I never forgot it because it just kind of made my mind explode with the connections of, of seeing the symbolism in passages we've read so many times and we just weren't aware of it because uh, most of us aren't Jewish and we haven't been raised in the Jewish tradition. We have the, the privilege of having uh, a young man named Ofer who grew up in Israel. I heard he memorized most of Psalms in Hebrew. 
and he is going to be here. He's a representative of an organization called Jews for Jesus, and he's going to have the whole display up here on stage, and will walk us through it, um, and then we'll also be um, experiencing a full meal together. So I think it's going to be something to be remembered and uh, something to be enjoyed. Sign-ups will start next week, and can I just encourage you with, with one thing? Um, Let's make this a special event for our church family. And um, it's not that I, I don't enjoy or like other people from other churches or maybe, you know, your coworkers or your grown children or people that you think, oh, I would love for them to experience this feast. That's, that's not it, and I hope you hear my heart on it. But we kind of have a limited uh, capacity in this room. And I think now more than ever as a church family in a time of transition, we need to be together, and we need to be building memories together and feasting together and eating together and learning together, and I just think this is a really cool opportunity for us to share and connect as a church family. Sound good? All right. Well, this, um, this story of hope, this Christ in the Passover event, again, reminds us that Jesus is the true Messiah, and that is the hope of all hope stories, that we have a God who came to live among us, Jesus, who lived with an anticipation of bringing goodness and beauty to a dark and despairing world. And that's the Jesus that we put our hope in. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the God of hope. Thank you that you crashed into a dark and messy world because you believed in the power of beauty and goodness. God, I pray that you help grow us as a church family in the next 40 days as we think about being co-creators of hope with one another. God, I pray that we give you access to places in our life that need to be revived, that maybe we've given over to being hopeless, and God, that, that we could rely on one another um, to help us build a durable and a lasting hope that is grounded in you. So God, we give you these opportunities that lay ahead and the experiences ahead. We give you our, um, our acts of kindness or ways of generosity or any of these things that we, we are trying to do to just be as good of followers as we can and we offer them and trust that you will do good things through that. Not because we're good, but because you're good. Thank you for your love today for us. And I ask that you just bless each person and meet them in their needs and concerns today. Thank you that you are a God of beauty and goodness. In your precious name, amen. Would you stand with me? And now may you go anticipating a week of beauty and goodness because Jesus goes with you. Be blessed. <laughs>